All right, you can open up your Bibles to the end of 1 Corinthians. We will be uh, finishing this book, Lord willing, this morning. Our uh, ushers are bringing by note sheets and pencils for you, and if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and uh, they will bring one to your seat. Uh, we will be starting a new series, not this coming week, but the week following on the 24th on what I like to call Taco Sunday. Uh, we'll be getting into the book of Hosea. Uh, I wanted to go back into some Old Testament text, and um, I really felt that the love of God for His people, His faithful, abiding, steadfast love, His sacrificial love, is so vividly on display in the Old Testament uh, book of Hosea that I thought it would be a wonderful compliment to flow out of this book of 1 Corinthians, which in many ways expresses again and again the need for the church to love the Lord God, and then in doing so properly, to love one another. So we will be getting the book of Hosea uh, after next week, but today we have some, some business to tend to. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and we're going to be reading verses 19 through 24. After 19 months of prayerful consideration, studying through this book, we've reached the end of the letter, and uh, there are so many things that we have discussed, we have talked about, the beauty of the Lord's table. We've talked about the importance of not playing favorites within the body of Christ, particularly with leadership, finding pastors that we love and making idols of them, or dis uh, discarding the teaching of other elders who are faithful and, and, and stick to the Word of God. We've talked about how we are not to treat each other with contempt or in secular ways, or to look to the world to solve church problems, but we are to work those things out together in love. We've spoken of our spiritual gifts and how they are to be applied to the betterment of the body of Christ, uh, to the raising up and the, the improvement and the encouragement of the saints. Spoke of so many different things. We've talked of love in vivid detail in chapter 13. We've talked about how that love spills out into not only our own congregation, but in other congregations that we've, as we've talked about the offering that was given up um, for the Jerusalem church and was taken up in, in Corinth. So, so many wonderful and beautiful concepts and ideas. And yes, head coverings too. Thank you, Paul, for reminding us of that. But uh, Paul has uh, a little bit more that he wants to share with his brothers and sisters in Corinth as he wraps up his letter. The, the closing of letters uh, often contains pretty standard material, and it's not going to be that very different this morning. We often see in the pastoral epistles, or rather into the uh, ecclesiastical epistles, uh, final exhortations, last encouragements given to uh, increase the confidence uh, of a congregation in Christ and his ability to help them to do the things that were encouraged to them to do in that letter. We see last warnings given by the authors of these epistles uh, for the churches to be careful and to be on guard and to be on watch and ever vigilant. For we are uh, at the same time a family of Christ, but we're also an army for the Lord God and we are in a spiritual battle. So we need to be on the alert and on the ready. And thirdly, there is an assurance of love usually given from the writer of the letter to remind the people who received it that the words that they got were not just dictatorial uh, uh, dominion, but were instead words of fellowship in other areas that love the shepherd too and care for the, the saints wherever they are gathered. And so these are the kind of things we'll be looking at here at the end of 1 Corinthians 16. Um, um, and uh, as we read together, keep those things in mind and, and, and try to identify some of those elements that Paul has included in his closing remarks to this church in Corinth. Starting with verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 
I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer together as we prepare to finish this wonderful epistle. Lord God, you uh, have given us so much. And Lord, it's, it's amazing to think of how much difference this can make in our lives if we were to take the words of Scripture and truly and faithfully and diligently apply them to all that we are and all that we do, Father. But it's even just wonderful to sit and marvel at the beauty of how you cared for your church in, in that earliest time of its existence. Help us, God, to, to keep at the center of all that we think of as we get into Scripture, Lord. Let us know that all these words not only proceed from your mouth, but shine back glory onto your countenance, Lord, that we would think of you in higher ways, in more reverent ways, because of uh, your leadership over your church and the way that you care for it so diligently, God. So let us know that we being a part of that very church that you love, we being your very bride, God, we being your body who goes out into the world to do your bidding, Lord, let us rely on you uh, in all things, knowing that you are great and mighty and that we could not ask for a better king. We are grateful for every servant that you have used throughout the ages to bless your church. I pray that you might use me in some small way today to bless this church um, despite my shortcomings, Lord. And we praise you, especially for the Apostle Paul this morning and for the great wisdom that he gave to his brothers and sisters and the way that he pointed them ever to Christ. And so we love you and are grateful for the things we'll gain uh, from our study of this scripture this morning. We pray it all in the perfect name of Jesus. Amen. When you think about what characterizes these last six verses, you can't help but notice the generally positive and friendly manner by which Paul closes out the letter, which is remarkable to a degree when you consider that the apostles had to spend so much time digging into the serious errors that his friends were making in the church. He, he's called them to task on so many different things, some which I mentioned earlier, and it must not have been easy for that congregation to read this letter aloud amongst them and to wince every time they saw things that they knew that they were doing wrong. But despite all of that, despite all that necessary correction, the letter ends with a lovely cascade of affectionate friendship from Paul to his brothers and sisters there in Corinth with the possibility of what seems to be maybe one glaring exception in verse 22. So a summary of what we will meditate upon this morning, Paul's going to deliver salutations of love. He's going to deliver these last words of brotherhood from three different sources. He's going to do it first from the churches in general, and then he's going to get a little more specific and speak of some friends uh, that are, are well-known to Corinth who send their greetings. And then he's going to talk about his own very heart and how much he loves this particular church. But we will note that the parade of affection contains what might seem like a strangely discordant note ringing in verse 22, which to many people feels a little out of place. How are we to make sense of the inclusion of such a firm and weighty rebuke in the middle of an otherwise warm outflow of love? So we intend to make sense of that this morning to see how it all fits together perfectly the way that God intended. So first, uh, we see the set of salutations that comes from the churches in general. Verse 19 says, The churches of Asia send you greetings. Now Paul assures those in Corinth who were not in Asia that all the churches in the region where Paul is currently ministering are thinking of them and want to send their greetings along with the apostle. 
If you look at the map that's on the screen there, you'll see the, the region of Asia Minor is to the east. Um, you see that the church of Ephesus is on the western edge of Asia Minor, that province. And then across the Aegean Sea, um, by way of boat, you could easily travel to Corinth, which is in Macedonia, but properly is in the southern region of Macedonia, often referred to as Achaia. And so that's quite a lot of territory to cover. You can see how many notable churches are spread throughout that region. Part of the reason that Paul wrote these letters that we have as our New Testament scripture today was to address the specific spiritual needs in those churches and to do so from a distance. He couldn't be at all places at once, nor could John, nor could Peter, but they all had a vested interest in seeing the church of God thrive everywhere that it was planted. But it was also important to Paul to do all that he could do to grow camaraderie and mutual love between the congregations and to show them that this body of Christ is not a segmented and fragmented body, but it is one group of people who love the Lord in unison. We saw evidence of that earlier in this chapter as Paul gave the Corinthians specific instructions regarding a special financial gift that they were preparing that the other uh, delegates in Corinth and maybe even Paul would deliver to the church in Jerusalem, which was experiencing much persecution along with a severe famine at that point in time. Considering the heart and the mind of the apostles, we can see that it's no small thing for Christians everywhere to care not only for their own congregations, but for the family of God throughout the world, and to do so with love, to do so with affection, and with prayer. Christian, your union to Christ has made you part of something so much bigger and much more significant than just yourself. You, you cannot conduct your life as if you are you and you alone. As people who live in the West, we often have a tendency to think very independently. And it is a temptation to us to see things that are happening around the world that don't affect us directly as not particularly relevant or important to our day-to-day -day function. But that would be a misunderstanding of who we are now in Christ. Carl Truman, who's a Christian writer, philosopher, and professor, uh, with a particularly strong grasp on this problem, uh, wrote in an article that we linked in our eblast a, a few months back in September. Uh, he made notes of this challenge writing, and I quote uh, Carl Truman here, there can be little doubt that we live in an age where the individual is sovereign, and he means in their own mind. Ours is a world where individual rights and demands carry a particular or peculiar weight. And the result is that our institutions, particularly our voluntary institutions, are more like boutiques competing for customers in the marketplace of self-fulfillment. Colleges sell themselves on the basis of allowing students to find themselves and to reach their potential. And churches promote their programs as sources of personal happiness and well-being. Religious and irreligious, we are all expressive individuals now, seeing the purpose of life as feeling good and anything that hinders that as being evil. The question of how to counter this and how to recapture the New Testament's vision of the church as a body of believers who finds their identity not in themselves, but in love of God and of each other is a pressing but difficult one. The New Testament does not describe Jesus as having several bodies, friends. 
but as having one body with many members, one body with one head, that head being Jesus Christ himself. And so although First Family Church is a group of people functioning in unison to accomplish the will of God in this particular place, we are not all that there is of the body of Christ. Throughout the world, wherever you might travel, there are faithful brothers and sisters who are called to the same gospel focus that we are. And we have a responsibility to care for those brothers and sisters and to lift them up in prayer. You might have noticed that each Sunday morning we pray several times throughout the service, and each of those prayers has a particular regular emphasis. And so the pastoral prayers covers the most ground, uh, and we thank God for blessing, uh, for being holy and for setting apart His people. We praise Him for His awesomeness and for His abiding presence in our lives. We thank Him for the grace by which He has saved us and for the many blessings that He has given by way of uh, answering our prayers and hearing uh, our cries for help. He provides for His needs, and so we acknowledge that in prayer. We ask Him for forgiveness of the sins that we commit as a church and, and also as a nation and as a world. We confess our ongoing need to rely on Christ constantly for the strength and the wisdom that we need to faithfully live our lives as directed to His glory. And we ask Him to meet these specific needs that we have as a congregation. So that's the pastoral prayer. Uh, the elder who happens to be preaching that day will often usually pray once or twice as well through the course of, of giving that charge. Uh, maybe at the beginning of the message, as we did a minute ago, asking God for particular insight into His Scripture and guidance as we grow in wisdom and maturity. And then usually at the end as well, as we thank Him for what He has given and answering that prayer that was prayed at the beginning of the message. And then positioned between all of that is the offering prayer, a, a time by which we reflect more specifically upon God's provision and ask for the maturity to use what people give as a gift to Him in such a way that we're going to be a blessing, not only to our own community, but to the church throughout the world as we contribute to missions and missionaries around the globe. So let us remember not only that we are called to care for the work of God as it spread from Jerusalem and to Judea and then on to Samaria and now to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus promised that it would in Acts 1.8. Also recognize that there are thousands of churches in the world praying for you in the same way each Sunday morning, asking God for churches like ours to grow in faithfulness and in affection for the Lord, humbly requesting that people will listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ and that they will be touched in the heart by the Spirit and that they'll be saved. And that as we grow in discipleship, our Savior Jesus will be all the more glorified in our lives and in our testimonies. Do you ever stop to think about the fact that as we pray for the churches of the world, so too are we being loved in prayer by millions of believers worldwide in the same manner. In however many different languages, brothers and sisters are lifting you up each Sunday morning that you might grow and experience the grace of Christ. Paul wanted his friends in Corinth to not lose track of the fact that they were loved. They were loved by other believers even believers far removed from themselves, believers who had never met them personally, were caring for them in that very powerful way. The Corinthians were in a relatively unpersecuted position compared to some of the other churches. And I think in that, it's maybe in large part because there wasn't as much of a Jewish contingent in the Corinthian area to come down hard upon these converts to, to Christianity. Much of the earliest church's persecution 
came at the hands of angry Jews, Israelites, who refused to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah sent of God. And since Corinth didn't have as vocal of a contingent there, the Corinthian church was able to abide without a ton of resistance. Um, However, just because things were relatively peaceful for the believers in Corinth, that did not give them the luxury of ignorance to their brothers and sisters who were enduring less favorable circumstances. Remember, remember that Paul spoke in the beginning of chapter 16 of that offering and reminded them that this was an act of love on their behalf to brothers and sisters who were maybe culturally quite different from them, but theologically were praising the same Savior and, and had made the same profession of faith that they did. And this was part and parcel of his efforts, of Paul's efforts, to spur on a mutual love and affection for believers, not only within the congregation, but throughout the world and throughout the whole body of Christ. So that's the first set of salutations that we get. Paul continues with more of them. Uh, he goes from uh, uh, these general salutations to more specific salutations from friends of Corinth particularly. And so these specific friends of Corinth are mentioned in verse 19, Aquila and Prisca or Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. So Paul mentions, uh, along with all the Christians in the Ephesian church where he is currently ministering, where he writes the letter from, two specific names that the Corinthians were familiar with. A married couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, these were former residents of Corinth. They played a significant role in the initial establishment of the church there. And we spoke some at the very beginning, back in October of 2020, about the part they played in Corinth. But it's been long enough that I think I'll mention them again. In Acts 18, verses 1 through 3, after, it says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently came from, uh, from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commended all the Jews to leave Rome. There was quite a disruption in Rome at that time. Uh, the Roman Empire saw the Jews as part and parcel of that disruption. Perhaps it was a conflict between the church and uh, Israel. We're not sure. But Claudius had ruled that all the Jews, including Christians who were still considered a part of the nation of Israel at that time, to leave the city. And it says, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, Paul stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. So we hear that we see here this married couple was not originally from Corinth, but they were on the move out of necessity. And as they came to the province of Achaia and settled in the city of Corinth, Paul and, and their paths crossed. And quickly they formed a connection between the, the three of them because they shared the same trade. Uh, Paul was by trade a tent maker, so were Aquila and Priscilla. And so they saw the providential hand of God in leading them all to the same place, a city that was ripe for the gospel, and they labored together to help that city see their need for forgiveness through God's Son. After that successful initial ministry, which lasted some months, Priscilla and Aquila traveled with Paul. They left Corinth, having established the church there. They traveled with Paul to the next area of ministry, um, and they landed in Ephesus, where Paul stayed on for a short while, but then traveled on farther uh, to Antioch. He did not leave Ephesus without help, though. He charged Aquila and Priscilla to stay behind in Ephesus to continue to be a guide and a blessing to that place. 
So now Paul has gone full circle. He's back around to Ephesus. He's reunited with Aquila and Priscilla. And so as he writes to his friends in Corinth, he says, these two who were with me initially when we established your church that you know and that you love and that many of your families were blessed to have been in contact with, they send their greetings and love as well. These two, Priscilla and Aquila, are now still making tents. We see that there is a house church in Ephesus that is meeting in their house. They were particularly equipped to build large tents, and so they probably had a pretty spacious dwelling where they invited the people of God to come in and worship on the Lord's Day and no doubt various times throughout the week. Now, there was another preacher mentioned in 1 Corinthians who had a connection to Aquila and Priscilla and to the church at Corinth as well. And his name was Apollos. So Apollos would eventually join the couple in Ephesus and would apply his powerful preaching to the church there in Ephesus. Interestingly, Aquila and Priscilla, hearing Apollos preach, pulled him aside. Acts 18 tells us that they explained to him the word of God more accurately. There were some things that he preached that that needed some, some refinement. And what a blessing it is to see that Apollos didn't shrug back from that, but instead embraced this wisdom that they, they gave to him. Perhaps this was wisdom that came to them by way of Paul. We don't know. Apollos, a zealous and faithful man, a gifted preacher, was willing to receive that well-meant critique and correction in order to be a more effective preacher and a proclaimer of the truth. And so Apollos grows there in Ephesus. And after a while, God leads him to travel to Achaia. What's in Achaia? Corinth is in Achaia. And there's no doubt that Apollos then spent considerable time preaching to and getting to know the very church to whom this letter is written. So Apollos was a friend to Corinth as well, but but Apollos is not mentioned here uh, at the end of Paul's letter because Apollos is not in Ephesus now. Paul doesn't send that specific uh, salutation. Instead, he sends in a salutation in the name of Priscilla and Aquila, the two who didn't forget their friends in the region of Achaia and who wanted to send their greetings and love. One more note here. In verse 20, Paul mentions generally again that all the brothers and sisters send their greetings and then he encouraged them to greet one another in a specific way with a holy kiss. Uh, The dinner table at the Neves house is for a lot more than just eating as Paul was sharing this morning about his family has family worship time. Uh, We also have family worship time. We usually do ours after we eat at the dinner table while the boys are finishing up. Some of my boys are slower eaters than others cold stare towards that section. Uh, We have plenty of time to sit and read a passage of scripture together and sing a couple of songs together and pray together. And so as we pray and and sing and and think about the things of the Lord, usually it takes about 10 or 20 minutes. Uh, It's not a a big dent in our day, uh, but it's a time that is a, a great encouragement to us. We call it family worship time. That doesn't mean we worship the family. That would be pretty heretical. Uh, It means that we as a family worship together. We worship our Savior. And uh, I would encourage you, if your family doesn't do something like that, to start thinking about having that regular time. It doesn't take a lot of prep or planning. Just open the scripture together, read and, and reflect on what the Lord says. But on Saturdays, um, we've recently started to use family worship time as a way to prep the kids and uh, Missy and myself also for hearing what's going to be taught on Sunday morning so that our hearts will be ready for it, so that we'll be in that, that mindset as we enter the house of God. And when we read the passage that I'm preaching on this morning, my boys were not too excited about the idea of a holy kiss. That didn't really appeal to them. Uh, And so I had to clarify what the holy kiss meant. It was a a form of greeting which was very common 
in that area of the world, in the ancient Near East, and it's still common even today in many of those places and throughout Europe. It's, it was not a, a, a full face-to-face -face kiss. It was more of a kiss to the cheek. You might put your cheek against another person's cheek and then kiss the air next to them. And it was a way to get near. It was, it was a sign of trust and a sign of gathering close together. Uh, it, it might be a benefit to the American church today considering that we often go into such huge churches. I have somebody shaking their head up front here. We go into such huge churches where it's impossible to know everyone. You might sit in a section where there are people that you've never really seen before and then you walk out without having really spent any time with them. I, I don't think that's what church is meant to be. And so when Paul commands several times in the New Testament for us to greet one another with a holy kiss, don't miss the fact that he's calling us to come near to each other, to be in the presence of one another, and to show by some sort of recognizable sign that there is love and care and affection from saint to saint. I don't think you have to kiss one another, but I think maybe the holy hug is our version of this today. And I, you know, one of the things that grieved me as a pastor going through this uh, time of COVID was the amount of distance that we were told to put between one another and the feeling of coldness as we would come and see somebody from quite a ways away and say, I want to be there and I want to have my arms around you. I want to put your hands in my hands. I want to be able to pray right there with you. I want to be in contact with you. Uh, but to have all these artificial structures saying no, it's very difficult. It's hard for us to contend with and it should be difficult for us to contend with that because we're called to gather and to be near physically, not just in spirit, but also face-to-face -face and cheek-to-cheek, -cheek, perhaps. The third wave of salutation that close out this letter um, comes from the heart of Paul himself. So we've seen general salutations, we've seen specific salutations, and now we're seeing a very pointed salutation from the apostle who wrote the letter. Uh, we read again in verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. Now, several things to point out here. First of all, Paul evokes the grace of the Lord. And this is very common in the beginning and the ends of letters. Should not the grace be the object of our everything? As Christians who are who we are because of God's willingness to grant us undeserved affection and merit. Should not grace be ever on our lips, on our minds, and in our hearts? So Paul desires this grace for the church. He wants the church to abide in this grace. He wants the church to desire more of the grace of the Lord. And so not only does he uh, invoke the grace of the Lord at the beginning of the letter, he says it here again at the end. He also expresses his own love specifically for the Corinthians. And he shows maybe he's a bit of a softy here, a sentimental. He says that his love, he wants his love particularly to be with them all. He's got a great deep affection for these brothers, and he doesn't want them to miss that fact. And he includes several significant editorial notes here as well. It's clear that he did not personally, physically write the whole letter that we have in our Bibles here today. Now, it was very common for a church leader in those days, particularly an older leader, or one who might have bad eyesight, to use the help of a fellow Christian with good penmanship to actually write down the author's words as he verbally dictated those words out to them. 
Uh, there are other examples of this in the New Testament. We see in Galatians chapter 6, verse 11, where Paul writes, See what, with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, there's some speculation that Paul, in his conversion experience, you might remember, was cast blind on the road to Damascus, that he could not see, and for several days he was led along by the hands of others. And then eventually, when uh, he was greeted um, by that, that brother, I think his name was Simon, the scales fell from his eyes and he began to see again. Uh, but some have conjectured that perhaps there was a lingering weakness of sight in Paul. We don't know that for certain. Um, but the fact that he's writing these, his signature with such big letters might mean that he had to write big to see how he was writing and to make sure that he was writing properly. So in Galatia, he signs this important letter with his own hands to end the letter there. Romans 16, 22. I, Tertius who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. So there very clearly, we see the, the Romans was a letter from the, the heart and the mind of Paul by way of the Holy Spirit, that Tertius was a, was a faithful brother who recorded it. He was the, what we would call in fancy church terms that you don't really need to know, an amanuensis, a scribe. And so he wrote those things down. Peter might have even used an amenuensis in 1 Peter 5.12. It says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regarded him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So that either means that he sent the letter by the hand of Silvanus or that he wrote by Silvanus, meaning that Silvanus was the one who actually inscribed the letter. In the opening verse of 1 Corinthians, the Bible mentions a brother named Sosthenes. Uh, who likely was the one who penned the letter for Paul. But here, Paul is saying something so personal that it won't do for someone else to write it for him. So as he concludes the letter, this last section, he takes the quill from Sosthenes and he writes it himself so they can see that this is not a forgery, that this is from their dear friend. I have no doubt they have other correspondence from him and can match the handwriting up and tell that it was truly his. And this is kind of a dramatic move, isn't it? He has something so vital to say, but he wants to make sure that they know that it comes from him. And within all of this affectionate warmth of sharing the grace of the Lord and his personal love for them, scribbled out in his own large handwriting, the Apostle Paul drops a comment that has potentially dire implications to some of those who read it. It's a warning that states, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. Our Lord, come, says Paul. All of this love from the brothers is good and well. It's a blessing to know that old friends still think of you and pray for you. The brotherhood and the fellowship of the church is a true gift to cherish. But punctuating all of that is this warning that there is a more important love than the love of your church for you. And if that most important love is not in place, then the consequences are catastrophic. If anyone reads this letter and does not have a love for the Lord Himself, if their reason for regularly gathering with the saints is not sincerely rooted in a reverent admiration for the Creator, for the Savior, then let Him be accursed. Paul did not know how long he had left on earth, and neither do we. 
However, the Scripture shouts it loud and clear that the Lord will not remain apart from us forever, but will surely come back to the earth in His resurrected body, this time not to fulfill the law, for that has already been done in Christ's earthly ministry, but to punish indefinitely all those who have broken the law and have rejected the substitutionary atonement of Jesus on their behalf. We preach Jesus Christ. We preach His life, His death, His resurrection, and we preach it with the prayerful expectation that when people hear this message, some will be moved by the Holy Spirit to repentance, that they'll see their own sin and that they will realize that they might be able to hide their sin from their neighbor, but they cannot hide it from the Lord of hosts who stares right through every facade and every, every pretense. As an offense to the God who gives life, Breaking God's law is punishable by eternal death. And so those who die apart from Christ, they die without hope. And those who happen to still be alive in this earth, but yet are without Christ, when the time is fulfilled and Jesus returns to judge sin and wickedness once and for all, will also stand without hope at least until the command of the Lord booms out and they bow their knee in sorrowful admission that Jesus alone is Lord. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But for those who have not Christ, it will be too late for them. The curse will be complete. If Jesus does not stand in our place, if Jesus is not our Lord and Savior, then we be accursed before God and we will pay the just penalty that we deserve to pay. Paul acknowledging this says, even so, even though it will mark the end for many, nevertheless, Jesus, when the time is right, you come. We are waiting for you to come. So you can see how it's possible to read into this shift in tone from love to almost hostility. You can see how people might take that the wrong way and be confused by it. The statement itself seems somewhat cold. Let him be accursed. So is the Apostle Paul loveless towards the lost? Please do not get the impression here that that is the case. Paul, perhaps the greatest missionary of all time, cared deeply for the salvation of the lost. His constant prayer was that those who do not love the Lord would turn from that curse and believe the gospel. So if you would open your Bibles for a moment to Romans chapter 9, this great explanation of gospel salvation, our need for this gospel salvation, and its impact on those who receive this gospel salvation in chapter 9, is, is a, or basically in the whole book, is, a, is written by the hand of the Apostle Paul as well. And here Paul lays out with much care and detail the fact that the new covenant in Jesus' blood is not like the first covenant. It is much different than the covenant of works. The first, Adam, uh, the first man, Adam, entered into covenant with uh, God in the Garden of Eden and failed to keep that covenant by eating one of, the trees, uh, one of the fruits of the tree that was forbidden of him, the only tree that he could not eat of. That's the one he chose to eat from. And so death enters creation, and Adam and Eve must leave the presence of God at that moment. Later, the nation of Israel was set apart to be holy unto the Lord. They entered into a covenant of works whereby Yahweh would be their God and they would be his people. But they too failed to keep the covenant of works that were required by them, or in them. 
And in the third chapter of Romans, Paul begins to establish the precedence of salvation by faith alone, uh, establishing an historical tie to noting that, by noting that Abraham, the father of Israel, believed in God, and to him it was accounted as righteousness. This salvation didn't come by his works. It wasn't that God saw him as more holy than the others and so chose him to be his representative. Rather, we learn that he simply believed in the greatness of God. And by that faith, God made him his special chosen representative, the head of that covenant. Simply the faith of Adam, or the faith of Abraham, brought him into covenant with the Lord God. So Paul goes on in Romans then to argue that the new covenant brings about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And he declares, quite controversial, quite controversial for the time, that this new covenant was not for only those who are genetically Israel, but for anyone who would believe. And then we get to chapter 9, which is where we've opened to. And in chapter 9, the very beginning here, Paul asks the question, well, what then should we think of those who are ethnically Israel? If this new covenant is for anyone who will believe on Christ, then what about those Jews who had the law and had every indication of what the Messiah would be like and where he would come from, and yet they had rejected that Messiah? What of them? And so Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. But Saul, still breathing threats... And, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong place. That's Acts. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh are, of course, the Israelites those who were ethnically Jewish, as Paul was. Sadly, so many of them heard the good news of Jesus and refused to believe it. It was to them a stench in their nostrils. They saw these who proclaimed Christ to be the very Son of God as blasphemers. And so they made themselves to be enemies of the church. It is the reason why so many in Corinth who were converted into the church were Gentiles because the synagogue there where Paul did preach first largely rejected Jesus. They would not receive that message. So when Paul started to plant that church there, he preached in the synagogue, and when they rejected it, he went on and preached to the Gentiles. But Paul's heart broke for those unbelieving Jews. Not only for them. There were thousands upon thousands of unbelieving Gentiles in the world, and there were thousands of them in Corinth too. So Paul doesn't just pack up and move on. If the Jews won't listen, he determined in his heart that he would preach to the Romans. And that is what he did because he had love and compassion for those who were like sheep but had not a shepherd. He never forgot about the Jews who didn't believe. And he cared so deeply for them that he would have even allowed himself to be cursed to hell if that would somehow result in their forgiveness. We know that's not a possibility. You can't trade your salvation for the salvation of someone else. But please don't read, uh, read this passage, this ending, 1 Corinthians 16. Don't read it wrong. Don't get the impression that Paul did not care for the lost. The truth is, the very reason this statement might seem out of place here in the closing remarks of chapter 16 has nothing to do with Paul's heart. It has everything to do with our own misunderstandings of love. The world that we live in preaches that if you love someone, 
You let them do what makes them happy. And you don't question it. According to the popular notion of love in the world today, the best thing you could possibly do is let a person pretend to be God of their own life. Play God for themselves and decide what is best for them, what is right and what is wrong. To do otherwise is considered a hateful judgment in this world that we live in today. At least that's what we're told. If that is really love, though, then of course verse 22 is going to seem like the opposite of love. Because in verse 22, Paul demands love for Jesus. He declares that it is necessary. He declares that there is a consequence for those who do not love God's Son. That may be incompatible with modern sensibilities regarding love, but friends, the meaning of this book does not hinge on the feelings and opinions of those who read it. It is the declaration of God's truth. And so this stern warning from Paul is not a change in tone. It is not a misplaced finger on the piano that makes the chord sound shrill and unpleasant. It would be better if we stick with musical terms to consider it as like a key change, like an elevation of focus that, that concludes this letter with a crescendo Because Paul has a sincere love for the Corinthian church, part of his expression of affection for them will also have to include his concerns for them. He's urging them to be serious about their relationship with Jesus and to examine whether the way that they are living, the way they are worshiping, and the way that they are treating one another is properly reflective of a true love for Jesus Christ. That is the most loving thing that Paul says in this whole ending. This rebuke is every bit a part of Paul's love for the people here. His love for them is not interrupted by the rebuke. It is shown to be genuine by way of it. When our love for someone is genuine, friends, it will be reflected in our priorities. When we neglect to say the thing that our loved one most needs to hear, the thing that will do them the most good, simply because we do not want them to get upset at us, or we don't want want to come across sounding like some kind of a bad guy, then we are showing what our priorities are. Our first priorities, if that is our tact, is what does this person think of me? That's priority number one if we refuse to speak the truth to our friend in love. Our second priority is then, is this person really getting what they need? That's secondary to us. What a selfish ordering of events here and what a a blatant ignorance of godly love which is so eager to put the needs of someone else in front of his own needs. We spoke just a few minutes ago about Aquila and Priscilla and about how they clearly demonstrated lives that lived with Christ as priority. They went where God called them to go. They used their skills to be a blessing to the people of God. They opened their own home to the saints so that they would have a place to worship. But also notice how they demonstrated this very principle that love and rebuke are not necessarily enemies but rather that rebuke and correction can be a very important expression of love. Recall that when Aquila and Priscilla encountered Apollos preaching in Ephesus, it was clear that he was a very gifted preacher, and he spoke accurately about many things concerning the gospel. It was clear that his faith was in the Lord, and that he was making every effort to win the lost to Christ. It would have been very easy for Aquila and Priscilla to see that, to be impressed by his skills and his gifting, 
to be swept up into Paulus' talent and presence and to just simply applaud what he was doing. But they saw something in his preaching, didn't they? They saw a problem with something that he spoke of by the way that he preached about baptism. They couldn't just let it go. They could have just hoped that God would point this out to their brother by the Spirit, but they loved Apollos, and so they couldn't let it go. They loved the people that Apollos was preaching to. They loved the gospel itself. And because of that, they wanted Apollos to preach things as accurately as possible. And so they confronted that. They worked to confront that in Apollos. Notice that they did it in a very loving way. They pulled him aside and they spoke to him face to face so that he could see their concern was not from jealousy. It was not a territorial move on their part. They weren't saying, hey, look, buddy, I'm grateful you're preaching the gospel, but this is Ephesus and we've been here for a while. You know, Move on to preach somewhere else. That was not the case at all. They go to him face to face as sincere brothers and show him that their correction is motivated out of a love for the truth and a concern for Apollos himself and for the audience to whom he preached. And as a result of this loving confrontation, Apollos grows. His preaching becomes stronger. His message is clarified. And we know from chapter 18 of Acts that he went on from Ephesus to go back into the area of Achaia and eventually to Corinth where Paul is writing this, lesson, this letter and to be a blessing to them there. Brothers and sisters, believe the words of Proverbs 27, 5 through 6, which says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the words of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. The great commission of Jesus Christ is not to go ye therefore into the world and show everyone how exceedingly nice you all are. That's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not be as honest with possible as possible without offending them. The Great Commission is a call, a command to make disciples. And to make disciples, you have to help conform people to the image and the heart of Jesus Christ. You have to tell people they're in sin. You do it lovingly. You do it with consideration. You don't do it with a proud, puffed-up heart. You do it knowing that you need the same thing for yourself. You have to show them the seriousness of disobedience and the hurt that selfishness will cause them and will cause their relationship with others. You have to show them that the solution is not just mere effort on man's part. It's not better obedience, but only the perfect obedience of Christ. And they must return to that every minute of every hour and dwell in His grace regularly. You have to think little of people's regard for you, knowing that those who love the Lord only in word, but not in deed, will not receive that kind of loving correction with the kind of grace they need to receive it with. It is what Paul, by and large, has done for his brothers and sisters in Corinth throughout this entire letter. And he did it not despite his great love for them, but because of his great love for them and because of Christ's great love for all of his children. I hope that our love for Jesus has grown through the study of this wonderful book and I trust that it has been a means of grace that not only grows us through our understanding of the Corinthian book but also to everyone who will be impacted by the way that we love better because of what we've learned by the pen of Paul and the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your grace and ask that as we conclude this
excellent journey that you have brought us by, that we would not consider it an entirely closed matter, God. May the book of 1 Corinthians continue to speak to us throughout our Christian walk. Father, I pray that these words would embolden us, that they would fortify our hearts and edify our understanding, God. Give us an ever-increasing accuracy in our theology and in our doctrine, God. We want to know you well so that when we go to a brother and sister, we know when it's appropriate to correct. We know it's appropriate uh, to point something out that could be more sincere, more true, more accurate. I pray, Father, that you would give us forgiveness when we are not as clear as we could be, when we need rebuke. And we're grateful that you strive with your children, that you love those whom you have made your sons and your daughters. And so, Father, help us to not see this as any kind of condemnation when someone comes to us with the word and points out what needs to change in us, Lord, but help us to see it for what it is, uh, the loving hand of a father who cares and who will put his son or daughter on the track to maturity and growth and greater joy in the truth. We love you, God, and thank you for this time and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.